Hello, everyone. We are back with another episode of Stamped, and today I am joined with Noelle. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yay, I'm so excited. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, where do I start? Um, (laughs) So my name is Noelle Baldwin, and I am originally born in New York, but raised in South Florida. So I was raised in Fort Lauderdale, and um, um, both of my parents are Jamaican, so I'm a first-generation American, and um, was raised in South Florida, and I moved up to the um, D.C., Virginia area about six years ago. So I've been up here for about six years, and um, my career has been in higher education after um, I went to undergrad at the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida. And after I graduated, I started working in admission. That was like my first job (laughs) out of undergrad. And I was on the domestic admission side. But from my time and experience there, I transitioned to international admission. And that's when I kind of learned more about the international education space. Mm-hmm. And from that, um, I realized I really wanted to, to focus on this area. So I transitioned from working for a university in international education, enrollment management, to working on the provider side, um, doing outbound study abroad. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been um, with working with a provider for the past six years, um, working with universities to help get their students to study abroad and experience the life-changing, <laughs> the, the life-changing uh, opportunity of study abroad. And um, that's me in a nutshell. I have a little doggy, Layla, married um, to my husband, Gerard. And um, yeah, we just here in the D.C. area trying to survive COVID. (laughs) I know. So I always like to know what our what the travel experiences of our guests were growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, there's sometimes can be a link between expo- early exposure to travel and tourism um, into what they're doing now. So just mm-hmm. wondered what those experiences were like for you growing up. Yeah. So growing up for me, uh, my earliest memory of travel was always back to my um, my family's home country of Jamaica. So I don't think I ever used those words growing up like, um, you know, tourism or heritage travel or anything like that. I didn't have that verbiage when I was little. It was just, you know, we're going back home to see aunties and, um, yeah. you know, extend, extended family. And it was very much... Um, a part of our summer routine, right? So, you know, um, we would have like my grandmother and all her her sisters immigrated to the U.S. like in the 80s. And so you had this generation of cousins like us <laughs> who, was ra- who were raised here in the U.S. But we would go back um, to Jamaica in the summer to visit cousins. And those are my first uh, travel memories um, outside of the U.S. is always to Jamaica. Um, and then, of course, traveling in and around Florida, going to New York when I'm I was raised, uh, born in New York, but traveling from New York to, to, to Florida, Florida to Jamaica. Um, those were my first memories. I actually have a picture of me sitting um, on an airplane, like in the middle seat. And <laughs> I think my dad took it. And this was like one of my first trips to Jamaica. And I, I always, I don't remember the day, but looking at the picture, you know, you kind of, yeah, um, you have those uh, memories around it. And that was, daddy says that was like my first my first flight where I kind of sat by myself in a chair in a seat. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> the things that I have like that I that I remember. Um, but then growing into like a young adult, 
it's experiencing international travel um in college really well high school I guess would be the first time I um I traveled out of the country no I was still with family I was gonna say by myself but no I was still with family it really in college is when I first traveled out of the country by myself okay Um, and was that a study abroad experience um that was yes so that was um and at the time I didn't classify it as study abroad but I went to South Africa on a faculty-led program and the faculty-led program the reason why I didn't think it was study abroad because I I went to the University of Miami which is I guess it would classify it as a PWI uh, Mm -hmm. predominantly white institution but um, an emerging HSI because there's a large Hispanic population Um, but the black community at UM was really small and tight-knit so there was about like 2,000 of us Mm -hmm. each freshman class like super tight Um, and I remember thinking that study abroad wasn't really a thing for me so in terms of like my international travel experiences and linking it to study abroad when I went to South Africa on this faculty-led program I was taking a class and I was studying abroad but I didn't classify it as study abroad until I got older and was Mm. reflecting on the experience like oh I did that (laughs) yeah like when I was crafting my resume and looking at things I was like wait that that's totally study abroad (laughs) yeah yeah Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I I have so many points just in thinking about your early story, because, of course, like in the travel tourism world, which is where I, I kind of live and research, a, a large part of us, you know, our travel is based on seeing family and friends. That's mm-hmm. a, a large part of it. And when I did my thesis, a lot of the distinction people were making in terms of their visitation to family and friends was what they did while they were there. Mm-hmm. So if it was just we're going to, you know, Alabama, Georgia, wherever, um, to see grandma and grandpa, but we just sit in the house all day. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, no. I mean, yeah, we went there, but no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if there were things outside of the home, they were going to tourist sites, um, visiting restaurants, et cetera. Then they were like, oh, yeah, it was definitely a part. And we got to see our family. So yeah, I think that's interesting, especially for people whose relatives do live in other countries where it's like, oh, we're just going to see the family in Jamaica, <laughs> you know, here it's like, oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, you know, as you, as we're talking, I'm thinking of, um, I remember when I was 13, uh, I entered, my mom forced me it, it, to enter this <laughs> um, a, a local pageant. It was called the Miss Jamaica Florida pageant. And I was very reluctant. I didn't want to enter it. But one of the prizes was a trip to Jamaica. <laughs> and even as you and I are talking right now, that trip, I, 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 end, I ended up uh, winning the pageant and as an ambassador traveling to Jamaica with my chaperones, but my chaperones were close family friends as well. Mm-hmm. So it felt like an extension of the family. And because I was going back to Jamaica, even though I was making this trip, I was 13 years old with people who technically weren't my blood relatives, but I was going in an official capacity. Like we visited, you know, the the governor general's mansion and we went to the Bob Marley museum and we did all these official things. Mm -hmm. Um, But even still, when I reflect on it, because it's Jamaica, because it's home, I, I don't know if I put it in a separate box and I don't know why, (laughs) (laughs) but that was a really pivotal experience too, because just, for me, I think international travel or traveling has always been 
something that our family did, mm-hmm. but it was in the confines of um, our heritage travel of, you know, to see family or learn about our heritage and culture. So when I kind of what you were saying about your research, that trip was the first time I went to Jamaica and it wasn't about seeing family. That trip mm-hmm. was about literally learning my learning about the diaspora, the history, the culture of being of Jamaican descent um and that was that was very important for me to experience at that time yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely that's so fascinating Mm -hmm. well and the other thing that you mentioned that I really picked up lately has been a common theme for people who have been on the show has been kind of this notion of like yeah I kind of knew about study abroad but I really didn't think it was for me and kind of um, disassociated themselves with even having that opportunity, um, whether folks had been had an international experience prior to college or not. Mm-hmm. So how did you have that professor as a class? Like walk us through how that actually became then a reality for you. Yeah. So as an undergraduate student, like I took, um, you know, foreign language language classes in Spanish. Um, but I, I always had an interest in potentially traveling to the continent of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on like different classes I was taking, I was a psych major, education minor. One of my faculty members, um, it, his name was Dr. Edmund Abaka. And he, um, he talked a lot about preconceived notions of the continent of this dark quote unquote continent. Mm -hmm. And um, that sparked a lot of interest in me because um, I was very active in my United Black Students organization. Um, I was a student leader on campus and doing a lot of things pertaining to my identity as a black woman. And I felt like, man, I would love to have the opportunity to visit, to travel. So I was first introduced to the idea of study abroad through, I think it was just like an event on campus. I worked in the multicultural student affairs office. And so we made, you know, we connected with other departments and the study abroad office would come because they were trying to, I guess, recruit students to go study abroad. But even still in that moment, I didn't put myself in that category to go abroad too. Like I was, mm-hmm. I worked in the, in the uh, multicultural student affairs office as a federal work study student. I was earning my extra money. And again, I still didn't think it was I, I still didn't think it was for me. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until um, one of my mentors mentioned, it wasn't even the faculty member himself. It was a mentor that said, hey, have you thought about going on this particular program? It's um, the history of South Africa. It's low in cost. Um, like I'm, re- we're trying to get more students because if we don't have a certain amount, we can't go. And, Been there. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and now being on the, now being on the other side of it, I can totally understand where this mentor was coming from. And she was just like, you should, you get, you, you got to go on the trip. So um, I told my mom about it. Um, my godmother, she was one of the planners of the trip. And again, I think that family oh. connection, we talk about a lot um, with students now. And it's only when I reflect, I realize, wow, my mentors, my family members, my community really played a big role in that because it was my mentor and my godmother that really encouraged me and said you should do this it's low in cost I'm gonna talk to your mother like it's not it will we'll get it going wow and that's the the class itself I had interest in it but the class itself then just became a, a part of the experience like it was it was a 
a part of it, but it wasn't the sole reason I was doing the program. You know, mm-hmm. I was going on the the study program, but um, yeah, I was I was so um, energized by all of the support, and you know, I, I saw myself doing it. Like I saw it as an actual option. Once my godmother gave the okay, my mom gave the okay, and it seemed like, oh, this is really going to happen. Like, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That so takes me back to one of the other guests that I had on the show. I think the title is It Takes a Village because Mm -hmm. it was that same type of interaction between, you know, people on campus, her family, friends who chipped in and helped with fundraising activities that really brought her study abroad dreams to fruition. Mm -hmm. So I, I think as many touch points as we can have with with our students, it, it really does make a difference. It you know, does, the, yeah. yeah. It feels like, it, it doesn't feel as big of a leap. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel as um, isolating. Because I think sometimes when you, when I at least now when I work with students studying abroad, they think about, who what they're going to be missing out on like the friends that aren't going to be with them or the people that their security that isn't going to be with them abroad and so when you have that going into the process and those people are encouraging you and supporting you going into it you don't feel like you're stepping out on this cliff totally by yourself Yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that's an excellent point now were there any and being that you were already doing some of that identity work, were there any, um, I guess, pre-orientation type activities or resources that you remember using as a, a person of color getting ready to embark on a, a program to the continent? That, that's a great question. Um, looking back, the so the the majority of the students and it was a small program as I alluded to before it was like they were trying to get students to go on the program there were I think like five of us actually five Mm. students and then two three faculty members a chaperone so it was you know the student group was small but as far as resources we had an orientation and the orientation wasn't even at my home institution it was at another school because really it was the faculty member from this other school that was leading it and I remember thinking because and he was a it was a black faculty member um, one of one of few and he was leading this history of South Africa course and all we did in the pre-orientation was talk about kind of the the book that we had to read which was Nelson Mandela's A Long Walk to Freedom we talked about the agenda the itinerary and all of the amazing things we were going to see and do mm-hmm. but we didn't and all of us were black there was only mm. there were yeah there were no um there were no other folks on the trip it was all people of color wow yeah and so yeah so so i think maybe that that's an anomaly in a way i i but it was all people of color and we were on the you know in the orientation just getting to know each other getting to know our like what we're studying what our goals were but there wasn't anything specifically about identity before we went so i think for me my perceptions were informed by my previous knowledge of the continent of South Africa. So, you know, reading the book, knowing about apartheid, thinking, okay, well, we're, we're going back to Africa. I'm going to feel so connected. Like I had those preconceived ideas and Mm -hmm. it wasn't until one of the chaperones 
um, I think right before we departed or what, when we got there, he was talking about the ISIS papers and <laughs> some different uh, readings that he had done. And so it was almost maybe it was preordained, but when, when we landed, I feel like we started to unpack a lot of things that I don't even know if the faculty member knew we were going to realize that we would encounter in a way. This was not his first time on the, in South Africa, but I think, I mean, I studied abroad back in, it was 2006, 2007, yeah, 2006. So I don't know if it felt more touristy to maybe some of the folks versus... Mm. And I don't know if that make is that if that if that's resonating or making sense, but um, I did, to to answer your question, no, there weren't a lot of identity based trainings like oh, what to do with your hair while you're abroad or yeah. things like that. <laughs> Not to the extent that we're you know that we have today for sure. Mm-hmm. And still, seemingly a lot more. You know, that's another area of of growth, I think, that students of color have indicated being necessary um, and trying to work through how is that best delivered. How is that best delivered? Yeah, because I I mean, and now I think identity is so, I don't want to say nuanced, but there are so many um, intersecting identities that students have. So I think now it's also, it's layered and it can be a bit complicated. now I'm able to talk to students about, you know, being a multi-hyphenate, being a person of color, going back, like all of these things that I've experienced, but it's only with time I look back and reflect and mm-hmm. I can put verbiage and meaning to certain things to help the next generation of students prepare um, because you're right, it's still a need for sure. Um, yeah. Hence why there are so many great people like you, you doing the work, you know, to make <laughs> sure our students are fully prepared. And then also feeling okay with not knowing everything like being okay with the ambiguity and understanding there are going to be moments of a a lot of discomfort um like I remember being in South Africa and someone calling me colored and Mm. like how it felt initially like that felt really jarring and I'm you know like it's having to defend my position but realizing wait I, they're looking at me as an American like I'm not even you know I, like you feel this connection but they may be looking at me more so based on where my passport is my nationality yes. versus my perceived um you know skin, my color or, or what have you so yeah a lot of things girls a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's a really great point because I mean those things that we grapple with here are very U.S. focused right, right? and mm-hmm. so when we're sending our students to different parts of the world where it may present itself in a different form. I don't know. That's such a really interesting point that I I think people, unless they've been through that, probably wouldn't know to kind of unpack Unpack, for students. Yeah. 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 How to unpack it before you go, but then how to also like in the moment when it's happening to your students. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing those. Oh, no, please. I, I'm happy to. <laughs> How did you move into then the field of international education? I, I hope one of the things that um, this podcast will do is to also shine the light on the types of positions that exist in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, because before working in it, before graduate school and kind of doing a research project on international ed, I hadn't really considered because I just didn't know that much about 
what the options were. So mm-hmm. I hope this serves as, as one of those opportunities for students listening. Um, but tell us kind of your entry into the field. Yeah, I and I think it, it's so great that students have this platform that they can listen to because I didn't know about the field of international education before getting into it. And I think now there are, we, the field has become so professionalized that there are literally, um, I mean, so many degrees that you can yeah. do, like you said, right, that are focused on international education, higher ed and cultural competencies and all of these wonderful topics. But I think for me, it was birthed from a place of, um, again, as I mentioned, my first job was in admission. Mm-hmm. And in admission, I and I people I I loved my time in admission. I learned so much and I was challenged and stretched in a lot of different ways. But as an, uh, you know, I worked for my undergraduate institution. So, you know, going through as a student and for the students listening now for you, (laughs) you know what it was like to experience your alma mater as a student. Mm-hmm. And then when you go on the flip side and you start working for the, your alma mater, you see the whole other <laughs> side, right? Yes. Good, bad, <laughs> ugly, all of it. And then you get, you see how, you see how the sausage is made to use that analogy. <laughs> and it, 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 it really turned me on to this this whole field of higher education. So for mm-hmm. me going into college, I was pre-med. So that may resonate with a lot of students because, you know, when I went to a private school and it was, um, it was like known for medicine and I wanted to help people and you help people by becoming a doctor. Uh-huh. That was my, my, my mentality. And then as I got into it and I did, you know, internships and I t- d- did the orgo and all that stuff, I'm like, this is not for me. Like, I don't like this. <laughs> I can't picture an entire career in medicine. And mm. for those who choose specific careers that require, you know, additional schooling, et cetera, w- whatever career you choose, you really should have a passion for it. And I didn't have the passion for it. So what I realized in undergrad, um, I had a passion for for psychology. I had a passion for education, but it wasn't K through 12. Mm. And so when I got my first job in admission, um, I was a tour guide too as a student. So I think that's also like yeah. I saw a bit of that as a tour guide. Uh, so as a student, you know, getting involved also helped me see different areas and different opportunities post graduate. Um, But as far as international education specifically, when I worked in admission and I learned the um, the the business behind um, higher education because obviously there is a where there is nonprofit values and a mission to educate students which I wholeheartedly believe in but I mean let's face it there's a there's a whole mechanism on right. education now I mean those of us who who may still have college debt and all that know that oh. <laughs> right <laughs> another podcast but <laughs> but um. You know, while I was in admission, um, I had the opportunity to work in international admission. And in that space, I was I was I was able to um, I did uh, credential evaluating. I traveled Mm. all over the world. I met different students. I I read transcripts from all across the Caribbean to Southeast Asia, to China, to Europe. And I thought, wow, like 
I, I was just so energized by this international students that I was that I was meeting mm-hmm. and traveling to their countries, albeit, um, you know, quick, like I would be in I, I was in India for for maybe two weeks at a time, but twice a year, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I was building relationships with with schools and partners and um, working with folks like at Education USA to create opportunities. And I was just really invigorated by the field. And I said, you know what? I want to move to DC and I want to stay in this space. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. So I started looking, you know, at State Department, thinking of taking a, you know, the exam to be a foreign service officer, uh. all of those things. And then um, I was on the NAFSA website. So NAFSA is one of the professional organizations and um the, on the on that website i saw different job listings for providers and uh, and study abroad offices and i thought wait oh of course like i worked at an institution for how many years <laughs> yes there's a study abroad office these are opportunities that i can think about and so going through just you know going through the job search page googling um and i discovered the provider that i work with now and i was like wow this is this could be a whole like this could be it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I applied and I will take this moment to say I remember my first event working for working for my provider. <laughs> I was at a university here in DC and um a, a colleague who was working at another provider, um, she was an older white woman. And I say that because it's, it's the context of the story and kind of given the nature of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the table, like behind the table at a study abroad fair. And she comes over to me and she strikes up conversation. She asks me like how I transitioned into the field. So it's a similar question to you, but more specific. Mm-hmm. And I told her I came from an admission background and she had this look on her face and she was like, oh, so, so do you have a graduate degree? And I said, yeah. I said, actually, I just, um, while I was working in admission, I also worked on my master's and is, she, is it in international education? I said, no, it's in, it's actually in community psychology. It's community and social change. So, it's, mm. and so she, she looked perplexed and she was like, well, you must be quite impressive to transition into this type of work from admission. And I, it was one of those moments where, in in the moment I was like, oh, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be in the field and you know, kept it moving. And I promise you, Sharice, like sometimes it's having conversations with colleagues like you and friends like you and going to conferences like at different um, you know, different professional conferences and you start to think. I was like, this moment, I don't know if this, <laughs> I don't know what the intention was in it moment, but it made me question like how I got into the field like oh is how I got into the field somehow non-traditional or mm. make me less than or you know so so those moments like I had to unpack for myself and realize people find their way into international education in so many different ways yes and have so many different like the people I know in this field are the most intelligent multifaceted amazing human beings I've ever had the honor of meeting and I think that's what makes the field so dynamic and so um, vibrant but it's this sometimes the professionalization of the field can feel like like in that moment when she asked me that I was just like oh am I not supposed to be here 
Oh my gosh. I have literally been sitting with my mouth covered, so I did not interrupt you. No, you know, now because, let it out. <laughs> because I've had, the, when I first came to my university, mm-hmm. it was the first time I had ever really been questioned, mm. I guess, about my academic pedigree and <sighs> work experience. And I'd never heard anybody say that before so I mean I just I oh, wish you could I, see my I, face I, I, just, I wish it was like a live um recording <laughs> I can see you in person right yeah. oh my gosh uh, yes I but the same thing it was where you know where'd you go to school and where do you blah 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 and you know I had for other people it was kind of a wow factor because I came to my position from having te- mm-hmm. uh, taught mm-hmm. in China so for me, it was kind of interesting. And in, in turn, I actually didn't study abroad. I had been abroad several times as early as high school, um, playing oh, in awesome. a concert band through an yeah, it was really fun. This organization called American Music Abroad. But I mean, you know, as you grow up, you can't put like, I played clarinet or I had an awesome <laughs> girls weekend on your resume. So we should be able to. <laughs> I know, right? That all inclusive <laughs> resort was lit. I mean, I don't you can't put that on there. So or I just never figured out how to mm-hmm. articulate that on my resume. So <laughs> it was like, okay, well, I've been a teacher before. I can teach abroad, right? Because the ninety-nine percent of the jobs I was applying for either had to have lived, worked, or study abroad. And, you know, so I was like, yeah. okay, well, t- here it is. We'll just go that route. But yeah, when I came back, I had that very same thing happen. Just this constant quizzing of like what my experiences were. And I was always trying to grapple with what, like, is that because, oh, they're just trying to get to know me. But the way in which it was done was almost just kind of like, let's just make sure you belong in this space. And like you, yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you brought that up because- yeah, I was like, I haven't talked to anybody about that for obviously like, like and, three and that's years, the thing. I like, think, we experience but... these um these moments, and um we don't reflect on them initially, or they they give a they elicit some type of emotional reaction. But I haven't told that story in a long time, if ever out loud, and I. Yeah it's something that stuck with me in this field because I, when you look around in this field, um, there aren't a lot of black women. Um, and I remember right. thinking that before I took my position, I looked at my team and I was like, Oh, I'm the only Brown girl on this team. Am I, am I the only Brown girl? Like where, you know, and I think there is an intentional intentionality, if you will, to, in, to recruit mm-hmm. a more, diverse workforce to reflect the students that we're trying to send abroad which I think is great but then does the professionalization of the field become like this um this gate you know and this like but I we're also in academia mm-hmm. too so I feel like that also comes often you know like yes how many times do people ask you know where you got your degree what degree it is and uh, you know PhD versus EDD versus you know like all those things and yeah. thinking about the how this field grows how how sustainable is that and um I don't know just a lot of things but I it it doesn't surprise me and it's in a sad way that you as a as another woman of color in the field have had a similar experience you know because I've heard others say similar things you know oh jeez yeah yeah 
Oh my gosh. Well, well, and I think, you know, these kind of Mm -hmm. experiences, you know, as we continue to share, just again, highlights the importance of sharing our stories and yeah. And just placing this in different contexts. So that, I don't know, that that was great for me. Like a little therapy moment. (laughs) (laughs) We touched on it a little bit at the beginning in terms of what um, the function of your role is, but could you just um, explain again, reiterate what the role of a third party provider is and or any things maybe specific to what you do, if you'd like to include those. Third party provider or partner um, is a a third party organization that manages and handles study abroad. Um, So many of many of us as providers or partners are either nonprofit organizations or for profit um, companies. Um, My experience um, on the provider side has only been with a nonprofit. And um, we function, a lot of us function as mini institutions, right? So we have a registrar, (laughs) students, academics, recruitment, all of those same facets. And my role specifically is in um, the, the, I guess, the front facing kind of recruitment um, team and my job is mm-hmm. my, my my job is primarily to manage relationships so I manage the relationships with my universities um, to understand what their needs are as a university and how we can fit fill those needs so um, you know for for a lot mm-hmm. of universities study abroad programs can be expensive to manage or you know they may not have capacity in certain countries, um, or they may be looking for a specific discipline. So that's where I was, you know, as a partner, I say, hey, these are the programs we have. These are the academic quality that we can bring. And the the, the work that we can take off your plates <laughs> that you can offload to us <laughs> you can manage and um, help you help us meet or will help us help you meet your goals to send students abroad because all mm-hmm. of us are in it for the same yeah. for the same goal ultimately is to share the experience of internationalization of international education of cultural competence for me it's very personal because I especially when it comes to my black and brown students like it's um, a personal mission to to see more of us Mm -hmm. represented abroad so I know when I'm working with my HBCUs it it, it hits different just because I'm like you know because I can't tell you how many conversations I have with a student and the student will have a little accent and I'll, I'll say oh are you are you Jamaican and then oh my gosh, my mom is Jamaican. Oh, And we connect on this level. And it's not just based on nationality, but other things like, oh, I like your hair. Where do you get it done? Like those little mm-hmm. things go, it makes, I think it helps build that comfort level so that I, I then become a part yeah. of that student's community. So I can be that person that like my mentor was to me to say, hey, you can do it. Here are some resources. You know, I'm not forcing you, but man, you can make this happen. Like this is not something that's far off. And that makes me feel really fulfilled in the role that I'm in right now, working as a, working on the provider side seems like this grand process initially because students maybe don't really know like what the process is in terms of registering to actually getting abroad and I don't know how many times I've met with students and once we broke it down they were like oh that's it and I'm like yeah that's it like not to oversimplify but it's just 
you know, like this, these are the steps mm-hmm. and we're going to walk you through the steps yeah. and this is how we have and, to do it. So, and that can be freeing too for great. a lot of students. Like, oh, that's all I have to do. And, and then for some students, it's like, oh, yeah. wait, I have to do this. I and I have to do this and I have to do this. But then how can we make it <laughs> such that, yeah, you have to go through these things, but it's going to help you in the long run. And you having to buy your own ticket or having to figure out which class is going to transfer or figure out how to navigate a foreign airport by yourself these are life skills Mm. like my students that came back this semester from spring 2020 covid post you know like dealing with that i feel like Uh. the level of resilience that they have i'm not going to say acquired but developed is astounding because how many people can say man i planned two years or a year to study abroad and I finally got abroad and then I had to come back home, you know, and and now I'm facing other challenges being online and remote. So I think it does, it, it, it's, it's really encouraging to, to know how our encouraging the students to go abroad will help them achieve levels of resilience and other life skills that they won't even realize right now. It's only later on when they're on a podcast Mm -hmm. 30 years from now or whatever, <laughs> reflecting, they can say, yo, man, I remember, like, you know, put put the pieces together, hopefully sooner rather than later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you brought up an excellent segue into where I was wanting to get your insight or your experiences on in terms of dealing with COVID-19 as an international educator what has this last what three months or so oh, been man. like for you? <laughs> if I, I guess that's what that would be the noise. <laughs> it's it's really been like in all honesty, it, every day is a new challenge. You know, it's really been nonstop. Mm. Um, it's it's rewarding work, but it it's been challenging. Um, mainly because mm-hmm. there's so much uncertainty. And I think a lot of us, yeah. like for me, I want to be able to provide my students with, with answers, right? So I, I want to take this mm-hmm. business class in Milan. Can I take it? Yes. The, here's the, here's the syllabus for it, you know? And unfortunately there's just so much uncertainty and um, having to help students navigate that ambiguity. I think, um, is is challenging but more so i think as an industry and a field um, as an international educator i think just dealing with the systems has been the most challenging i find that the students Mm -hmm. i've been working with even though initially they may be disappointed the parents may be upset or disappointed there there's a, a moment of realization and understanding but just navigating the systems as an industry you know making it making everything work like okay now we have to go remote and then we have to think about okay Mm -hmm. well borders being open we have to think about visas we have to think about um housing we have to think about cleaning like there's there's so many moving parts and um it's challenging it's exciting because every day is, is something new and different and i think um one of uh one of the leader one of somebody i know in the field uh they were saying change never comes when when things are just smooth sailing right so uh yeah. now it's really a lot of adapting and learning and being quick to to change to mm-hmm. meet the needs of our students ultimately ultimately and make sure our students are safe that's the goal right you know all of us have friends yeah. and family and we all just we all want we want to stay safe so 
you know. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the innovations, I'll, I'll say, that has seemingly come from this ordeal has been the development of virtual mm-hmm. international experiences. Have you had any um, engagement in, in that, yeah. that and realm? I think for me, the, the idea of virtual um, international engagement is exciting. It's also finding that the value add, like for students who are paying tuition dollars to their home institution or paying paying program fees like they want to be in country so how is it that how are we ensuring that they're getting um if they cannot go abroad how can we make this online experience as immersive as authentic as possible so that in my mind it doesn't substitute it doesn't replace your study abroad in my mind it's this kind of this experience that you can have to whet your appetite even further to to delve into a topic, mm. a language, a culture a little bit more so that even if you're a graduating senior and you, this is your last opportunity to go abroad, you still have that seed already planted and that experience in a class online virtually to take you you know, into your postgraduate life. So you can do, if you want to do a, a Fulbright or apply to an international teaching opportunity or something like that. So I, I think the experience with it thus far in trying to create those type of programs have, um, have, been, have been really exciting. Uh, I think there's a lot of energy around it. Yeah. Like, wh- what are we thinking about? Like, what, what languages, how are students going to acquire the language? How are we assessing students? How are we keeping them engaged online? Um, so ideas they're constantly flowing and it's I think it's a really Mm. even though it's a tough time in international education I think it's a very exciting time and I'm choosing to I'm choosing to see it with that lens every day I have to remind myself (laughs) to choose it to 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 see it with that lens because there's so much opportunity and I am excited to hear more from students like do these mm-hmm. international, um, you know, long distance uh, opportunities, online experiences, how, how, is that something that's impactful for you? Is that something that you want more of, less of? I don't know. Because, you know, we're in 2020 and as an industry, we have to figure out what's what's going to come next and how yeah. do we stay ahead of that? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we've both been in education for a long time. Like education, higher ed can be a notoriously slow field, <laughs> even though we're even though we're generating yes. knowledge and we're generators of research. Um, it, it's I think sometimes we're not as nimble to pivot. So I think this is forcing us to pivot mm-hmm. faster than maybe some people are ready for. <laughs> so it's it's been pretty dynamic to watch and see every day well I know when I first started seeing these things come across I was thinking I just Mm -hmm. don't know if that's gonna fly like I I don't know if students are gonna be down to pay for that they want to be abroad but I think a really but then later on after reflecting and thinking about what opportunities could exist or come out of this it was like well, I started thinking about it specifically from a diversity, equity, and, mm-hmm. and inclusion lens and how maybe this is, as you say, like a, an entry point into something that will come later. Um, and maybe that's a deeper way that we can begin to bridge some of those gaps for students who 
who need or desire an international experience, but maybe for whatever reason can't necessarily actually that, go abroad. Sweet spot there. I think you may want to hold on to that idea and take that offline and copyright it. when like we're using that DNI lens. You know, when you think about when MOOCs first came out, like, you know, massive online courses yes. and some of the resistance that there was to it from, you know, these elite institutions and um, the growth of community colleges and even community college colleges within the study abroad space, there, there could be a real opportunity to bridge gaps and make, make the study abroad experience even more inclusive. Because I think sometimes... Now, when people, when families have to make tough decisions, um, when it comes to finances, student loan debt, etc., study abroad, I think for for some folks, is seen as a luxury. Is seen as something, um, mm-hmm. you know, that it's like an add-on, a bonus. But I I, I know a lot of yeah. the work that we've done as international educators is to show the research and show that actually it's not just a bonus it actually helps with skills that are transferable to jobs that are trans that's transferable to actual change in community so for me it's for me it's more tied to community change versus dollars but I think that's just my community psych background (laughs) but I I just feel like (laughs) if we're able to highlight that it can help students and families see the one see the value in study abroad and see the fact that whether you're at a community college, a four-year institution, a state institution, having these online international experiences built into a curriculum that lead to something in country um, at some point, mm-hmm. it's a nece- I think it's necessary. And it's uh, especially if we're trying to cultivate a really, you know, inclusive and um, understanding and empathetic generation and, com- and community, I think it's necessary for us to do these things, you know? Yeah, and I think depending on the the method of delivery, it can be really beneficial in area. It's, it's going to be exciting to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think, uh, international ed after COVID? How do you think thoughts on how it will be, how it might change, Man, stay the same? Um, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot for I mean, the past couple of months have been more like survival mode. So it's like, okay, we got, we got yes. to first. Um, but I feel like we're making yes. it through and we're we're surviving. So I um I don't know what it's gonna be what it's gonna look like to be quite honest. Um, but I want it ideally to reflect more authentically and accurately um the students that we're serving, you know, like I, I would love to see that ed- international education post COVID. Um, I, I would love to see it be even more nimble, you know, and able to respond mm. to a pandemic, respond to big cultural mm. shifts. And I know it's tough to do because you, you, you know, I'm thinking about us as a provider. We're thinking across you know, hundreds of different, you know, different markets. And um, there's so many different things to keep in mind, which can be really tough and challenging. But from a systems perspective, like a a project management perspective, how do we as an industry um, continue to 
evolve the way we had to evolve during COVID, right? Like we had to now wear masks Mm -hmm. and social distance and do certain things that we weren't doing four months ago. So as an industry, what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to keep from COVID? Like the lessons that we learned um, from COVID, what, what, what lessons can we learn that can inform our mission and our vision for our organizations um, so that we can just respond to our students and families even more, even better. And um, it, it, it's, it's going to be different. I don't know, especially, especially in some countries where yeah. it's like things are going well and they're, they're really hesitant to allow American students back in country. Yes, right. This is going to lead to some really interesting discussions, um, cross-cultural exchanges. I like, I can see students like inbound international students having these discussions on their campuses here in the U.S. and vice versa. I mean, it's ripe with opportunity, but I think we just have to act Mm -hmm. um, swift enough and with foresight. It's it's, and I'm using a lot of words. It's easier said than done because I don't don't know what it's going to look like after. But I want you know, it's just I think it's key for us to figure out where we want to position ourselves. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I this was an absolutely uh, oh, outstanding so conversation. I, thank I you. Feel like I can keep talking to you all evening. Like this is so, this is such a great conversation, and I'm so appreciative to have it with you and share this space with you as a a colleague, a friend, a woman of color. And I hope you know, as Black women, we can continue to help elevate not only not only us as a community, but the extended community of international educators and students and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Cause this is, this is great. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It was again, a pleasure to have you on as our first guest in the chat from the field series. And with that, we'll end this episode the way we end all of our episodes. You've been stamped.